a fair shake. HBO needs to fire you. You know no up, Fox. You ain't My yeah, How did he gonna be as equally talented as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him, I could have beat him while playing Chuckles on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you serious, James Tony? Allegedly, he said that you left him in a bloody poke. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. he was high. It says that, uh. Yeah, I was on his private jet or something like that. Yeah, was wow. Like, yeah, that was pretty serious. You starting to say all these big words, I'm starting to take it as disrespect. So today we're going to do something slightly different in the run-up to Christmas. And I think this is more a reflection of some of the fascinating and fantastic characters you meet in the world of boxing. So I met Shakiba Mogadam, or Mogadam, sorry. I met her about five or six years ago through boxing. She she boxed one of the young ladies I used to train and she impressed me with her tenacity and her fire. And this is a woman who's about five foot one, five foot two, and just shy of 50 kilograms, just for perspective. And she truly has the heart of a lion. Now, she's not just a boxer, she's a lot more than that. She's a PhD student and she's looking into the realms of mental health literacy and, you know, she has a particular leaning towards female sports and obviously her being a boxer, boxing is one of those. She's also been on TV, so she was on season five of SAS Who Dares Wins. And I think there was enough respect earned on that show that she's now in business with a couple of the guys, one of them Foxy and Ollie Ollerton as well, where they've got Battle Ready 360, which is a training program that tra that seeks to help mimic some of the stuff that the special forces guys do. So you know, I think she's one of these women, well, per people in general, not even just women, who's consistently achieved and consistently proved herself, you know, adding the, the ultra running that she does as well. And to be honest, the list of achievements goes on. But today we just wanted to, to have a kind of a get to no shack sort of conversation, which we're going to split into two. So the first part is kind of, you know, the get to know her, and her interests and her passions about the sport of boxing and even just stepping wider than that. And then for those who do watch SAS Who Dares Wins, we're going to have a bit of a deep dive on that into episode two and then some of the lessons that come out of that because I think that's also fascinating and just being able to compare and contrast that with some of the boxing experiences as well. What I'll do is in the episode notes, I'll put all the relevant links around Instagram, um, obviously website links and so forth. So as I always say, the people that I trumpet on this show are people I think you should all follow because they're incredibly interesting people. I do genuinely think Shaq's an inspirational human being. And she's one of those people who, if you know, she's one of those inspirations because she doesn't do anything complicated. She just sets herself a target and inch by inch she gets there. And as we discussed in the show, that's how you earn respect, is just being present and being consistent. So guys, enjoy part one with Shaq and I will see you again for part two so the first thing I wanted to start with because obviously Shaq I I know you through boxing but I don't actually know the backstory of how you ended up actually getting into it because I just I saw, saw the almost like the finished article so how did you get into boxing um boxing so 
I had no like background in boxing. No one I knew had background in boxing. And I remember it was my second year at uni. So I was studying my undergraduate in psychology. And um, I basically wanted to get away from like the that kind of like student, that, I guess that misconception of students going out and drinking. Um, I had a terrible 21st birthday. And I was like, I need to get away from the whole drinking scene. Um, and I was really militant with my training anyway before boxing. And I tried at kickboxing and I went to do my one in Portsmouth, which I'm so happy I got the opportunity to train there as long as I did and represent them. Um, I did kickboxing to begin with for about probably six months. Um, but because it was a university school, it was still very focused on like the socials and stuff. And that wasn't really me because I was trying to step away from that scene. And so I asked, I remember I stayed behind um, after one of the sessions me and my mate Demi and we were watching a boxing session and the, the coach at the time was this ex-Navy guy and he was so militant with the training and one of those guys that just take, didn't take nonsense or anything like that. Um, and I remember watching him thinking, you know what, I, I really like the, the look of this. I like... I like how he's training, how he's speaking to everyone. Um, so I didn't quite have the courage to speak to him that session. Afterwards, like the next week, I went up to him and I was like, all right, Wayne, um, do you mind me joining? And he was like, yeah. Um, but for the first like couple of weeks, he would he was just like, literally just watch me. Um, and then he was like, you know, I don't see male or female here. You just come in and get on with that. And I really like that mentality. And then we started explaining, like, you know, once you're boxing season, we don't drink, we eat well, we train hard. Um, and then when we finish the season, we'll go on and celebrate together. So I really like, as much as an individual sport boxing is, it's actually, you know, when you have a team around you and train with a team, it is a proper team environment. And I hadn't had that in other sports before. Like, I've played a lot of sports. I've played football, rugby, um, wakeboarding uh, at uni as well. And, it's just nothing compared to this, and there was always just this excitement about sparring, and I was just always, always like leaving wanting more. And nothing had quite done that for me. Like my problem with sports was I've 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 tried so many sports, but sticking at it was one of my downfalls because I I'd lose the excitement at honeymoon period. I guess as a sport, I compete in it at a decent level and then be like, oh, okay, on to the next one. With boxing, I just never got that. Um, yeah, I just fell in love with the whole sport, with how militant it was, like, and then it started building my, like, my mental resilience as well in terms of sparring with slightly heavier, more experienced people, um, really pushing myself in training. It just took, like, that term of pushing yourself to another level. Um, and I loved it, like, it, it allowed me to express this aggression that I had in me but in a really controlled manner, and I, I enjoyed that. And I just, I think with it came a lot of confidence physically and emotionally and mentally as well. And it's just a lot, it, it just embedded a lot of discipline into my life in, in general, like with my studies at that precise moment. I stopped drinking for four years um, in total during that period. Um, and yeah, it's it done a lot for me. Like it, it gave me a really good eating routine. Like I, before boxing, I I wasn't eating well in terms of I was always under eating. Um, 
I was boxing, I was eating to fuel my workouts, I was training two to three times a day. And then just the people you meet, like, yourself included, you know, you meet people from different, um, different diverse backgrounds from all walks of life. Um, you go to incredible places that you, you just wouldn't dream of going. Um, and you get to do what you love. You, I just couldn't ask for anything more in the sport. Um, and then I just got hooked. And I've just been hooked ever since. Watching it, doing it, training, sparring, anything. I just, just hooked onto it. Proper addictive. Can I just say, just for anyone listening, can you just let people know your height and weight? Because I still, it still blows my mind away sometimes. <laughs> okay, so I'm five foot two, just. Um, and I boxed at the under 48 kg kilogram category. Um, yeah, so I was like the smallest senior weight that was there. And it is, um, and I know we'll touch on your boxing career in a second, but it's the thing I remember. And it took you reminding me that you were the, the other woman in the fight. But I remember we put, we put a young lady in the Haringey and... Mm-hmm. And like in the build-up, we were just like, "Listen, you're going into the novices. Don't worry. Like you're not going to be up against anyone who knows what the hell they're doing. You'll be fine. Just stick to the jab, and just look, see it out, get the experience, and we'll be back next year." And so the bell goes, and <laughs> so all of us, you got to understand, like we've brought about forty or fifty people, and as soon as that bell went, we we're all looking, we're all looking, going. Yeah, grab the towel. It was it was within about seven <laughs> seconds. It was, yeah, grab the towel because you just set about like, and I've seen your I've seen some of your sparring videos since, and I was like, I was like, God, that must be so annoying to face in the ring. I, I, you know, when you look on the outside and you go, that must be so annoying. Like, no room to breathe in this one. Yeah, uh, I'm yeah. blessed, and I was like, God, this is a baptism of fire. But I was like, nah, this is. <laughs> If this goes two rounds, guys, man, the drinks are on me. <laughs> and I just, and then after that, I was like, I was like, who is she? And then you're like, yeah. oh, okay. And then, and then you start thinking, who are these, you know, the, the, the Jim one? Because most people in boxing kind of know Portsmouth through Q Shillingford, right? And the heart of Portsmouth Club. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. That's the one because he had, did he have Ebony Jones for a bit? Yeah, he did, yeah, for a while, yeah. Oh, God bless her. Um, tragic what happened to her. Mm, very yeah very yeah you know is you know because he's another one i remember she was like was she 13 back in 2013 yeah and she yeah and she came to she came to london because they did a like a get involved in sport thing the year after the olympics yeah and she just absolutely ripped into the pads like you you know when you watch as as a trainer Mm. you watch and go why don't i have someone like that yeah yeah I get you for sure, yeah. Especially in that female scene, like it was still on the rise at that point, like between 2012 2013. You were just, you know, like in the Olympics, it was just a newly introduced sport. And to see someone as good as Ebony, um, it was really like inspiring for people in her age and even older. Because you would have been in and around the same weight class when you when you started. Like, I think she started before you, right? Yeah, I think she started way before me, yeah. Um, um, yeah, but I think she boxed up to 51 or 54. Yeah. So remotely, yeah, pretty close. Um, 
and obviously she was in Portsmouth, so I, I see her naturally all the time in the boxing scene. Um, yeah, I, like it was fascinating how she got herself the way she did, especially because of her age. I think it's really hard at the age for people like teens to manage school, pressures of school, um, with like a, a sport, but at the elite level as well. Um, and uh, yeah, hats off to her for like managing that and for the support that she got. So I think it's an amazing achievement at that age, that young, you know, to dedicate so much of your time to a sport. I think it's amazing. No, she was brilliant. And I think it was tragic because from what I understand with GB, it was, you know, that constant pressure to make 51. But at 51, she was really unhealthy. Yet at 54, she could box pretty well. And she was like, I can't make yeah. 51. Yeah, I think people need to take think this is something I draw up on in terms of the research I've been doing. People need to understand, you know, weight categories for, for women boxers, Olympics, which is essentially, as an amateur, what you want to aim for is to go in the Olympics. Three weight categories is, is such a limited um, weight classes in comparison to the male counterparts. And it's, it's big jumps between the weight categories. And if you don't fit in 51, you've got to try for 60, and it's like, there's no in-between. Obviously, in Commonwealth, you do get the, the smaller jumps, which is great, but anyone in Leeds would want to go into Olympics, really. Um, and for someone like Ebony or anyone around her age, because there were quite a few girls coming up around her age, um, they're going through, you know, that age where they are maturing physically, and so they're going to naturally increase in weight because they're growing. Um, and sometimes I feel like these small details are ignored because in reality, they're not small at all. When someone's going through puberty, they're going to naturally increase in weight. And so, of course, someone who's 13 and weighing 51, maybe when it's on their 14, they're not going to weigh 51. They're probably be weighing around 54, 55-ish. And then 14, that cut down to 51 is so unhealthy, especially at that age, um, and it's damaging to their growth, um, to their mental growth as well as their physical and emotional growth. And so... I think there needs to be a strategy, even now, like even to this day, there needs to be strategies put into place to better handle that um, preparation for younger boxers to actually be okay with moving up the weight category and instead of, you know, giving them the option you should cut down, actually encouraging them to box at a weight they're comfortable with and teach them ways to gain muscle, to train in a proper way which will benefit their performance because we all know in boxing cutting weight is going to whether you like it or not it, it will reduce your performance especially your cardiovascular and muscular endurance performance and that's not something to, that's not something good to embed in your boxers at all and it's it's tricky because it's a fine it's a fine line so we we had a young we had a young lady join us and I remember at 13 she was 5 foot 10 and she boxed at 75 and we didn't force her to cut, but the risk was always that if we don't get her into the discipline of maintaining weight without forcing her to do anything harmful, but we have to remind her, look, we're not going to tell you to starve yourself. What we are going to say is, you know, try and stay away from the from the fast food. Make sure you're doing your runs at home. And th th so, but that normally happens in discussion with, with the parent, if you see what I mean. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, yeah. Is, it is tricky because... Yeah. When you looked at her and you're like, and I remember she, I think she fought for us three times before she took up dancing. 
but she was just blitzing people. Like she, you, she was thirteen, and you're putting her in with grown women, and she was oh, just wow. lighting them up. I, I, I haven't trained mm. someone that strong, that young, mm. not male, not female. Like she was, mm. a, she was a one-off. And I was talking to her mum recently, and I just said, "You could give her a rugby ball now, and I'm confident she'll play for England in two or three years. She, she can do oh, anything." Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I get that, but the way you the way you approach that is in a really healthy way, and like you're giving that person the tools, and then they'll just use it. So they know, stay away from fast food, continue with their workout and training, and they should reduce the weight naturally rather than, you know, go home, don't drink any water, go have a hot bath, don't eat for the next few days, and those are things that that do get passed around in in in, in some gyms, boxing gyms. And it's very kind of that kind of mentality that that we need to stay away from, but actually embedding discipline in the right way. Discipline is important, like you said, it comes with the sport. But it's embedding discipline in the right way where you don't have to put someone off. Because no one likes cutting weight. No one likes being dehydrated and not eating. But if you can reduce your weight in a healthy way by cutting down on certain foods for a limited time, and yeah, of course, like, why not? Give them the tools they need to reduce the weight in a good way. And that's the challenge. It's more, like, my, my philosophy in all these things is I like to make people accountable. You know, you manage that, so you don't want to make a, an 11-year-old, you know, under immense pressure. But even something small, like, after every training session, just write down your weight. Because then you know, actually, you know, I'm seeing everyone else in my group, and they're writing their weight down in... They, they're keeping it more or less in line. And what I see happen is, you know, the younger guys especially will just say, look, how are you doing it? And it's, well, I cut out this kind of food. I cut out that kind of food. I do my runs in the evening. So at least I know after I've done my run, I can have my food. And it seems to burn it quicker. And then they start just sharing ideas. But it's that idea of accountability where you go, I don't want to let the guys down, which I think actually is just an essential skill for life is that ability to say if I'm part of a team then I need to pull my weight yeah 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 and I, I agree I think that's a big thing and actually going and learning that from a young age is just as good life skills to have and something that boxing can like certainly teach you at, at that age and then I don't think so in terms of your boxing career when when did you debut because it must have been pretty soon before the the Harringate that of that year. Was that yeah. twenty fifteen or sixteen? I can't even remember now. That one was twenty fourteen, I think. Um, and that was my first year of boxing. Um, I think that was like my fifth fight at Harringate, the one that I came up against your girls. I think it was one girl from the gym. Um, that was my first year in boxing and my fifth fight, and I remember. I had to go up the weight category because there was no one in 48. Um, so I had to go up to 51. And I was hanging because it was my first, like, big tournament. And I remember walking to Alexandra Palace into Harringay. It was, like, really overwhelming. But, like, given that, that was I'd only had, like, four fights coming in. Three fights, sorry. I had three fights coming in at that point. Never been in the atmosphere like that. And I come in and I'm like, whoa, this is massive. Like, it was the year where Eubanks were in. And I was like, what is this madness? What's going on? And 
I was watching like these elite boxers and I loved the whole experience. Like probably one of the best like experiences in boxing was the having a um cup. Um yeah, I said there's no way in the weight category so you can either pull out or just go up and I was like, I'm not turning up to pull out. So I went up to fifty one and I just couldn't hit. I couldn't hit fifty. And I remember weighing in, I drank so much water and I ate like I was eating as I was weighing in, I was still hitting forty nine. Um, my coach was like, doesn't matter, um, doesn't matter, just go in. And I remember, all right, okay. So then I got, I remember I see, I see you guys and I was like, well, that girl looks bigger than me. So in my head, I was like, just go, go, go all out, go full Terminator mode. And at that point, moment in time in my career, that was like, all I knew was just Terminator mode. And I, I think up until my seven for eight fight, I was winning by like, I think I had 40 K TKOs under my belt at that point. And then I was literally just walking through people um, with just sheer aggression and like not stopping. Um, and yeah, I remember I just that, that, like going through that and then just thinking, yeah, just thing as if I thought is, I don't really remember what happened. I just to hear whatever happens happens and stay in the rain. And um, after that, I, I like I loved it. And then usually, I didn't realize I've won until like my coach was in the corner. He's like, "The fight gets stopped," and I'm like, "Okay, so what does that mean?" And he's like, "You've won," and I'm like, "Okay, cool." Um, and then as soon as my hand gets raised, then I celebrate after this. Um, and yeah, I remember that that first time it was like really great moment in my career, like early early career. And then from there onwards, so 2014 was my debut um, at our own home show in like, it was at Jim Cole Stacey ABC. I don't even know if they're still up and running now, but it was like a really small cover of school gym in Portsmouth. And I had my first fight there. I won it by TKO in like in the second, early second round. Um, so that was the only fight my mum came to watch because that's where she was, because she can't do with the boxing while in. Um, and then from there onwards, I just, yeah, I think until 2016, I was fighting like quite often. My dad was like my biggest fan, bless him, um, as well as my sister. And then, yeah, it was it was a really good, like, couple, probably I think it was three years by the end of it that I was boxing, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was feeding um, Golden Girl Box Club, which was really amazing, and snowing out there, travelling around the country, did a couple of England camps, trials, which was amazing. Um, won, I think I won a title, regional title, boxed at York Hall. Um, won, got loads of medals and trophies as you're doing boxing. And yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a type of privilege to get those titles and to come home and represent. I was representing my uni and the uni were really supportive. Got a couple of sporting awards from uni, which was really cool. Um, yeah, it just set me up. It set me up really nice, I think, for life in general, and like in my early twenties for sure. I learned a lot in boxing. Because I remember the first time we spoke. Do you remember you fought the the woman that wouldn't basically she wouldn't yield? Do you remember that? And she and I'm, I'll say it now. I've, God, I don't even know what her name is. She looked like she had been on something. Because I remember watching the fight and you went at her and I was like, why isn't this woman going backwards? Like she literally, I, I, I hadn't seen it. And I remember you came through after the fight and you're like, 
I, I've just hit her with everything. She didn't land anything on me. And how the hell has she won? Yeah, I, I remember. I remember that girl. Because um, I started with her loads. And she, she'd actually gone out of boxing for like two years and came back in when I hiring her in 2016. Um, and in sparring, I'd, I'd always got the belt off her. And she comes in, and all she done was just like, and I, I got really, I got really annoyed at the ref because he, he never said nothing. Like, um, she was like, she was shorter than me by a couple of inches, and she would literally just put her head down and swing for dear life. And um, like even there's a picture of her on YouTube, and it's her head like literally in my stomach. Um, and for me, I, I hadn't really faced anyone like that. We were just literally charge at you with the head down and swing if that had happened before like the ref would step in and be like get your head up and yeah I remember I was just really puzzled I was like I literally like tried to throw it at her but she would literally just put her head down come forward come swing in um, and we worked for her and we worked in her favour massively and she outpointed me in that way and I just yeah I remember I was really angry after that because I, like if I like there's been fights where I've lost and I was like yeah I, I lost that fight but was that when I was like I, I couldn't understand why I'd lost and why she, like she didn't get pulled out from the way she was fighting and yeah I remember that that left me like really bitter for a while because yeah I was just like I wasn't used to that feeling of like I feel like I've been cheated but here um, but yeah again boxing again has taught me just to one of the hard just to move on. 100%. It, it, it is, but I always remember that, yeah, it was 2016, was probably, I think that was like the peak of the Haringey Box Cup because if you remember, it was packed and then that was the first time I think they had the street food festival on the outside as well. And, yeah. And it, it had this really weird vibe of like everyone getting along, everyone shaking hands, everyone was in each other's pictures. And you, you now look at where a lot of those guys have gone on to, you know I mean, to, to get to. And between 2015 and 2016, you see, I think Ben Whitaker looks like a shoe-in for a gold medal at 81 kilos in the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, I've got friends like Dan Aziz, who's now knocking on the door of a British light heavyweight title shot. It was just, it was a yeah. great year. Young Courtney Bennett, who might make super middleweight for Tokyo 2021. Just, yeah, Ramon Abbey, she's gone into his yeah. now. Just yeah, so much yeah. talent that year. Really, like, probably the last golden year for talent. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. And um, I always reflect back on, like, especially 2014 and 2015, like, the people that were in, in the same room. And I wish, like, if, you, I'm not, like, if someone was there just to take a snapshot of everything that was happening and then compare it to where they are now, it's just incredible how many of those people have really climbed the ranks and like gone pro, gone to Olympic. Because and, I, I like, remember yeah. the 2015 tournament was there, was, a, there was a women's fight, which was probably the best fight of the whole tournament. And it was uh, Stacey Copeland versus Stephanie Rowe at 69 yeah. kilos. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah. it was, it was just, it was a, it's just a war. It was two yeah. two tough women going right. Who's going to back down first? I think Stephanie was representing the army, and then I always forget who Stacy Box was at the time. I've been Collie Hurst and Mostyn, and they just went at it. 
and everyone yeah. came to watch. Yeah, obviously, I remember watching that and thinking, oh, my God, like, I was expecting, like, first round knockout, the way they were going at it. Yeah. And no one was, no one was back down. And I just, like, every round, it just got tenser and tenser and tenser. And, um, oh, I just wanted more. I was literally left for more. I was like, I need to see more of this. I think that's still my favourite female fight um, of of any professional amateur. That's still my favourite female fight because you had two other ladies who were there that year, uh, Kelly Harrington and Dervla Duffy, who... Yeah. They didn't go to war with anyone, but they seemed to just run over everyone. They were just uh, a cut above everyone. And I'm still surprised neither of those two ever turned pro. Yeah, I think this is the thing as well. I've noticed, like, some people really do stick to the amateur dream of Olympics. Um, not even just being at once, but like going there and winning titles a couple of times and for example Sandy Ryan, like that's what I've noticed with her. And I like I, I really liked her, her as a boxer. Like I think she's done a lot for women's boxing and just like she could have come pro a long time ago and have won like loads of titles right now. But the fact that she chose to still stay in amateurs, that's that speaks volumes um, to someone who knows boxing. And like, you know, if you go pro, she she'll get signed. Like, I don't know, one match room, and she would she would be on the big show, or like lights on her paycheck. And yet she still she's still chosen to stick to the amateur route. And I like I admire that because she she like you have, you have to have. So much patience and resilience to turn that down and to keep pursuing like the harder roads in terms of like trying to maintain a, a lifestyle where you can train full time and not worry so much about like finances. Um, but know that actually I'm missing out on the limelight here and that I could be on TV, I could be winning titles, I can be winning like big paydays and and she would do well. Um, and yeah, I, I admire that in someone who speaks volumes to me. So I've always had a theory when it comes to female sport. Like, I genuinely believe women can run longer. I think women can have a longer career than the men can. So I, I expect we will be in an era where you will see women fighting for world titles 38, 39, 40, 41. I just... Mm-hmm. Just what I've seen in other sports, women just seem to be able to maintain a longer career at the top level. Like the prime example, someone like Serena Williams, I think she's 40 next year and she's still one of the mm-hmm. three best female tennis players on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's interesting. You say that like there's, there's been like, not just stuff like in terms of research that's been done, done on that, especially in terms of physiological measures and like females in terms of, for example, not all females, but majority of females are slow twitch. So they have slow twitch muscles rather than fast twitch muscles. And slow twitch is made for endurance. And so through that process of, I guess you can call it a natural selection of being a female, you can endure pain far longer than, than your male counterparts. And so we've only thought in training comes pain, of course, and the, the endurance, the mental resilience, and the physical endurance of literally just keep going. Um, and I, yeah, I do believe that that you 
food scene at, at the elite level. Um, like, for example, this, I got into ultra running last year, um, so two years ago, and there were so many females that were winning titles in their 40s. And I was like, wow, like 40s, late 40s into the early 50s, and they are like smashing these 80 milers, 90 milers, and like winning in amazing times, which made me look, really look into it. And um, yeah, it does. It does come with that female instinct of enduring pain and that resilience that you need as a female um, to endure pain. And of course, that doesn't apply to every single female on earth, but as a majority of the population, that relates. That does relate, and you do see it in school massively as well. Because there was a there was a sprinter. I think it was Merlin Otti. And mm-hmm. I think she ran her first major championship in 1980. And she was still running in like 2010, 2012. She was still oh, wow. not even just running. She was running at the top level. She was still competitive. Yeah. Which is absolutely wow. insane. Yeah, that was incredible. And I think one thing that I guess annoys me is that Within the Olympics, you do have, especially in certain sports, and again, it goes back to male-dominated sports, you have far more male representatives of that sport than females. And I think, actually, if there was an equal amount of them in that given sport, the longevity of that sport would be increased massively within something like the Olympics, where it is at its elite level. And it will just look good for the sport because it's more people through the doors and actually it might be the same person that will stay within the same elite rank, winning titles and medals for longer. But I feel like that opportunity sometimes is taken away from females. Um, And it is only helping the sport. Um, And yeah, I just, that's a a part of it there annoys me a bit because I don't think it's quite fair to the athletes but also to the sport as well. So the, the question I'd ask back is whether the failure of female sport is to perennially look to men. Because if, if female sport just said, actually, do you know what? Forget these men. We outnumber them on this planet. How about we sell our event to women? So I've seen it happen with, with netball. So if you look at the, the Mavericks, I think they play out of Hertfordshire, they mm-hmm. they can they can fill out the copper box and it's pretty much all female all ages and they can fill it out 7000 no drama not many guys there a few mm-hmm. dads are there but they that's their strategy their strategy is men don't really play it this is what we're going to focus on and so the sport's booming whereas i think mm-hmm. sometimes and i use rugby as an example a lot of women say you know we want what the men have we want this you know, why don't the men come and watch us play? And I'm like, eh, there are a number of reasons. Number one, same thing that affects most people, right? Most men play rugby on a Saturday. And rugby's core fan base is mostly people who play. So if mm-hmm. you play on a Saturday, you're normally hungover on a Sunday, or you've got to take your kid to go and play on a Sunday. So you never have an opportunity to actually engage with the female yeah. side of the sport. Because even if you go out after a game on a Saturday, you're normally seeing the netball teams. So that's actually the, in terms of rugby, 
male rugby players, female netball players tend to bond pretty well, mm-hmm. which then makes it hard to get that leverage. So sometimes I think people should invest more time in getting more women to participate, getting more women to come and watch sport and spend money. And then you probably wouldn't even need the men. Yeah, I think I think that perception of needing men as viewers of the sport, that's not necessarily needed, I think. I think just having viewers is enough, whether that's male or female or both. I don't think a sport would be missing out if not many men are watching it, but in, in turn, more women are watching it. I think as long as the viewers are there, that is all that counts on paper. But again, I feel like they are, like that is a natural thing to the when females are actually placed in terms of when they're competing in the competitive season, is inconvenient for people to go and watch. And again, that's one of the many factors as to why females don't have the same representation in male-dominated sports as their male counterparts because there isn't a, there isn't fair representation of them being viewed by others. And also, I think when you there's this massive argument, you know, if a woman performs better in a sport like rugby, for example, then they'll have more viewers. That's something that I've heard so many times. Actually, that's, that's not the case. It's, the two sports differ in, this, in the way that the athletes, one is a female cohort, one is a male cohort. So it's going to differ. It's the same sport, the same rules, but playing tactics may differ, team cohesion may differ. And so actually that in its own makes it interesting to watch for me, for example, because you may see the, the team bond in a certain way that maybe males don't. Um, they may have different tactics that males don't. And as an observer or a fan of a sport, for me that's interesting to observe and watch because every time I'll be like, okay, how are these, how are these two teams different from each other? And then it's also, I think, in terms of representation, um, there isn't, you can't expect a sport to have the same, if not better, um, views, for example, or fans if they're not being represented the same way as their male counterparts. And those things, when you, when you add them up, it, it does put people off of wanting to, for example, elite athletes at that, like, premiership level, for example, um, wanted to continue onwards with the sport because a lot of semi-league, for example, would still need to hold down a full-time job whilst competing in semi-league rugby because they're just not being paid enough. And you do see that even at the professional level Whereas when you go to the male counterparts, they are not only getting paid to train, but also they're sponsored, they've got physio, they've got nutritionists, they've got a fully paid gym membership. And so if you look at that as a person, not even as a man or a woman, you just think, you know what, I'm not getting treated here, I'm not getting treated the same as other people. So it is one of the factors that actually disengages an athlete from wanting to continue in that sport because of mistreatment and the lack of equal opportunities. And I, I, I do think, like, naturally when you do watch that and you just think, I'm not getting the same benefits as someone else, like, I have to work, not even, like, double as hard as them, I have to work triple as hard as them because I now need to meet the same expectations as these people, but through a much harder way. Um, and, yeah, to me, that's not, that's not fair. Like, I think it's getting better. Um, 
but it is still not where it needs to be for some men to then draw the conclusion of women run players don't have the same views as, as male rank players, so of course they're not going to get much screen time. You only draw that conclusion when everything is equal, and then we'll go from there. So I'll I'll probably nail my my hooligan colours to the mast here and say. So I sit in a really weird position with women's sport, and maybe I'm one. I'm one in a million, but with men's sport, I watch stuff that I really love. So that kind of freak factor stuff. So I watch Barcelona, Real Madrid. I watch Arsenal because I'm a fan. I watch England play rugby, but I'll generally not watch anything else. So unless it's the best of the best going head to head, I generally don't watch it. Whereas with mm-hmm. women's sport, I kind of watch a broader spectrum, but I feel differently about it. So example. I think Simone Biles is one of the greatest human athletes of all time. Male, female, doesn't matter. Excuse me. Simone Biles is an absolute freak of an athlete. Don't care if she's four foot nine and weighs 12 kilos. I really don't care. She does stuff that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, no matter how good a female rugby player is, I don't think she's going to do something that blows my mind. Maybe because I know too much about the sport, but I will be very respectful of what they're doing because it's not easy. So when you see the Pacific Island ladies come over and they just run over people and you go, wow, I respect that. When I talk to my friends who do play elite level female rugby and I hear the struggles, it's a deep, deeply felt respect, but they don't give me those moments where I'm like, oh, wow. But I'll still watch it because it's like, well, you know, if I don't watch it, who do I expect to watch it? Whereas if men were that bad, I just wouldn't watch it because I'm like, I could do that. Whereas I watch the women out of respect. And so I think most men have that thing of there's certain sports where you're like, this is amazing because I don't understand how this is happening. Serena Williams is another one, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the 100 meters. So you watch someone like Dina Asher-Smith and you're like, I can't run that fast. And so there's there's a freak factor. That's what I call it. And hopefully then no one takes offense when I say that, but it's that freak factor. Like when I see a female powerlifter pull 260 off the floor, I'm like, oh, mm, Jesus. Not really. So there, there's that kind of, I think for me, there's two streams. There, there's the people that give me that, that freak factor. You know, on the male side, it's when I see LeBron do that monster dunk or it's when I see yeah. someone pull 200 kilos off the floor and I'm like, Jesus, how do you do that? And then there's the respectful bit where I'm like, you're not giving me the freak factor but I know how hard it is for you to do what you're doing. And I think men, that's probably how a lot of men see female sport because in my head, I'm always thinking I might have a daughter one day and I still want her to play sport because I understand the benefits and I want her to be respected as a really good athlete. Mm. Yeah, no, like I get, I get where you're coming from for sure. And I think what you, I guess, have to look at is your expectation as a spectator and what do you want from watching the sport? Some people like, some people will literally just want to watch a sport for the sake of watching it. It's not because they want something exciting to happen. It's literally just watching it because their favourite sport is on. And so I think as a spectator or a fan, we need to be mindful of what our expectations are of watching that sport. Um, and for some people, like really the majority of reasons people do watch sport is because of the team rivalry you have between one team versus another, your country versus another country. 
And so naturally you're showing that, that, that cohesion in terms of team cohesion and wanting to support something. And actually that comes from wanting socially to be part of something and to be accepted as part of a team, a group of people, and so you feel accepted. And then when we look at, I guess, the, the social stepping of sport, um, that is what is, for example, when you look at hooligans and like the extent of violence to go to to prove they're part of a group is all to do with, with conformity in terms of I am part of this group socially. I'm going to, in terms of just the social aspects, I'm going to um, adhere to your expectations as violent as it, it, it is. And when you look at it from an outsider, what they're doing is really irrational, but for them it's rational because it is what's expected of, of them in that team. And so it, when you come back as a spectator and view it from that perspective, it really comes down to why are you actually watching this sport? And some people, and this sounds, to me, this sounds a bit pathetic, literally won't watch the sport because they're females playing on it. Now that's because they might have their egos, because they might think, you know what? I didn't make it as anything in this sport, and I love the sport, so I'm not going to watch some females do it. And so there's that there's that bias towards a lot of female athletes, but in male dominance sport. And this is what I always talk about. Sport involvement is a lot harder in terms of the pressures you experience from society, the societal pressures, as a female competing in a male dominated sport. And by that, meaning that that sport is accepted for some reason in this society just for, for males to participate in, usually because of its aggressive nature, because of the strength and the endurance it requires, and minimal grace that's required from that sport. Society um, associates grace, very feminine, small, light movement um, with, with sport, as a feminine sport. And that's why you see a lot of female sports, they wear next to nothing, they might wear skirts to give some sort of fem- fem- and female identity to that sport, whereas in male-dominated sports, you just won't get that. For example, in rugby, you will see the same kit, as you will wear the same kit as, as your male counterparts. Um, so as a spectator, people will be like, no, I'm not watching that. Like, there's a bunch of females running around, I'm not watching that. But put them in something that may come across more feminine, and you have more male viewers. Now, of course, because then you're sexualizing the sport in that way as well because of what they're wearing. But a lot of, I'm not saying this is all men, a lot of a lot of men and actually to a certain women as well won't watch a sport because they just socially don't accept the fact that they are now females competing in a male-dominated sport and that they are going to portray and display aggressive tendencies, aggressive nature. They're going to show strength. They're going to show dominance. And actually portray the same qualities as their male counterparts. And people just can't socially accept that and so they just wrap the sport off to come out with all of these, you know, stupid comments like go back to the kitchen, go back to cooking, you don't belong in the field. And that for a female is is a really hard concept to to deal with and then to continue with the sport because you have this love for it. Um and yeah, I think spectators need to be mindful of, of the expectations and why they're really watching the sport. Um, but of course, not everyone thinks that way, and I don't have the expectation of anyone to have that deep understanding of how society views female athletes 
especially in those on eight sports. So I will say this from a boxing perspective, I can name two boxers who have actually, and, I, and I've seen this just even in my own sort of circle and wider circles, who have changed the perception and for different reasons actually. So mm-hmm. Ellie Scottney's one, and I've been I've been banging the drum for Ellie for about three or four years now. I think she's a special talent. But yeah. when you watch Ellie Scottney fight, that's not a male female thing. That's someone going in there to take heads off. That's and, a boxer. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't put female or female. She's a boxer. Yeah, she she takes heads off. And I remember getting messages from my American friends going, "Who's this Ellie Scottney?" I was like, "Yeah, she's a young lady. I've been telling you about." It. He's like. And your man, your man, she a killer, y'all. She a killer. And the, like, the Americans love her style. And then the yeah. other one was Natasha Jonas, but for completely different yeah. reasons, because they're like, they're like, I used to see her before on TV and think she was beautiful. And then they saw the Terry Harper fight. They're like, and she can fight too? Yeah. And so you, you, yeah. st- you start to get that. And I think that's what you needed. You needed that mm-hmm. kind of, we're here to take heads off. And now yeah. and now all of a sudden as a fan, you're like, I'm bored of seeing these guys in four rounders. Well, I'm bored of seeing the men in four rounders against, you know, Latvian binmen and Bulgarian postmen, you know, winning yeah. 40, 36. Here I'm getting a proper tear up. Yeah, I'm here for yeah. this all day. And I've, over the years, I've seen that respect level for mm-hmm. female boxing rise and rise and rise. And the thing is, the next generation that's coming, whoo, wall to wall killers and I think because I said it I said it in 2016 what needed to happen in 2016 was the promoters needed to get together and say we're going to pick three weight classes and we're going to sign all the Olympians that made the quarterfinals and we're just going to match those guys up in the beginning because we know the fights will be good and then we'll build the sport from that core and sadly that never happened no I think it was just Katie Taylor that got signed and then it was like, yeah. yeah. And she had no one, she had no dance partners at the time. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And that was a real missed opportunity, I think. I hope they don't make the same mistake with the next crop. No, I hope not. Because, I mean, there's so many boxers coming through the ranks now that are turning pro. It would be stupid for them to miss the opportunity. I mean, it would be seriously stupid. Like, from a business perspective, from a sports perspective, from a fan perspective. You'd be stupid to miss it. And it's good because you're starting to see different narratives now. So I like what they're doing with Ramla Ali. So, you know, the whole, you know, came over from Somalia, kind of found her identity through boxing. And, you know, there she is with a, with a dream to do something special. And you go, do you know what? Who can't get behind that story? And I think yeah. we're, getting, we're getting there slowly. I wish it was quicker. Yeah. But my worry, actually, Shaq, is if we move too quick, we don't have enough bodies to make the fights compelling enough and yeah. then people lose interest. So there's a balance you yeah. have to strike between we need more boxing from the female side, but we also need more quality operators to make the fans believers. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing as well, I think, when it comes again to boxing, for example, is that you have to really convince the fans and so you have to go to the best fighters. For example, Katie Taylor, she paved the way as one of the best boxers. She happens to be a female. And so I think people have different expectations when it comes to females because some spectators 
even to this day, they'll be like, no, they don't blend, they don't, women don't belong in the ring. And so they have to be really, really impressed with what they see for them to actually even accept it. And so I think this is another added pressure to the females on that who are coming to the ranks, is that they have to impress, because otherwise, you have all this fan base on you being like, no, nah, she's a flute, no, nah, I don't know what she's doing here, you know. There's this ignorant comment that, Coming, that's coming from people who wouldn't even step in the ring to do pads, let alone actually spar or have one fight. And so that that needs to be taken into account in terms of the pressure that is on the shoulders of these boxers coming through. Um, and then to to still have this grace about them as as females. And I think you know, otherwise they'll get they'll get ripped apart for looking too manly, looking too muscular, not looking feminine enough. I think. Katie Taylor's, Katie Taylor's most recent um, fight. I've, I've completely forgotten the, the woman's name. But uh, she, Delphine um, Pursun. Um, was that the most recent one? Was it Delphine Pursun? I think. Uh, no, it wasn't. It, it was. was the Argentinian lady, wasn't it? Yes, that's the one. Like, she was a beast and she just didn't go down. And as a female, she was very muscular, had muscular tendencies. And I, like, Someone who goes into it and looks at these things, she was getting ripped apart, being like, "Now she's a man, and she doesn't look woman enough." And then it's just those small things that she was being ripped apart that, that a man just wouldn't experience, for example. Um, so that comes to added pressure of you still have to have this great and feminine look about you for for the fans to still accept you. And I just that annoys me because I'm like you, you're taken away from their actual skills and performance as a boxer, and then you're judging them as an athlete based on how they look. And it's rare for for a man um, to have to deal with those pressures from society. And again, there's something else that that needs to be considered when these female boxers come through the ranks. So I think my concern from a female boxing perspective, and I have the same concern with rugby and football is actually a lot of these women you see are users of PEDs. I know we'll probably discuss this later when we talk more about your research interests. And so if I see someone, I think my my eye tells me generally when someone is a bit too, you know, there's a bit too much meat around the back and the lats. And I'm like, either either you're in the Casta Semenya boat, which is cool, or you're you're buying something online which you shouldn't be taking. And... I know in rugby it's rampant on the men's side and the female side. And I think because that's never really been discussed in terms of female sport, people mistakenly go, oh, she looks like a man. Actually, no, it's not that she looks like a man. But you do have to ask, is she being tested? And I think that's right. And I think that's right more from a, a safety perspective because I do worry the, you know, if you took all doping out of female sport, the variance in testosterone levels between female athletes can be four to one, which you'd mm-hmm. never see amongst men. There's, there isn't that variance amongst men. Now, if you're taking something on top of that, then that's a worry from a safety perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do agree with that, yeah. I think in terms of um, performance drugs, I think the, the testing needs to be way more rigorous. I think at the moment, people have learned, and they learned a long time ago, how to get around it, how to get around the testing. And I think I am 
it's just not being controlled the way it should be controlled in terms of its rigor, in terms of how consistent it is. And so people do get away with it. And um, for me, I see it a lot more in MMA. Um, like a massive fan of MMA, and I, I do see it probably more so in in, in males than than females. But then obviously there's more male fights. Um, but you just see the small the small stuff. For example, um, so when men come off it, is that like the best way I can put it? It's like a stagnant in their breath and they come off a certain enhancement drive. And you see that a lot when you really focus on them, people do get pulled up on it. But because the test goes low, then you just have to take it for as it is. But the results are because the test being done are not regular. And unfortunately, females are as guilty and as their male kind of disease, if you're someone that uses it, there are certain aspects of you that will give that away. So it doesn't, honestly, yeah, I don't, when it comes to performance drugs, like man or woman, you shouldn't be doing that regardless because you're putting your opponent's life in danger because you're not performing to your normal levels of optimal performance. You're essentially abnormal because if you were to do a test whilst you were on these enhancement drugs, you would produce abnormal hormones. And so, yeah, I don't that doesn't sit right with me. I'm a case of a normal woman who's going to be doing it if you are competing at that high elite level, especially in a contact sport. Especially in a contact sport because there comes a risk of brain damage or concussions or breaking bones um, of, of so many things. And I think it's really selfish and disgusting to put someone else's life in danger because you want to be on performance your optimal levels are actually not your optimal level because it's that normal take. That's a me on that in all honesty and open being open about it. No, you're absolutely right. Um I think earlier this year I did an episode with a friend of mine, Larry, and it was a three hour one about doping in sport and you know, I don't want to bore my audience by rehashing old content. And I said to him at the time, my biggest worry particularly about women using the stuff is, well, that's used twofold. One, they normally get pressured into it by boyfriends who are using for whatever mm. reasons. The second one is we're starting to see a correlation between female strength and power athletes and birth defects or an inability to carry to term. That's the worrying bit. It's, it's covered up because obviously it's a very private matter but you're just starting to hear these stories and you're starting yeah. to to live through this. And that's my biggest concern is that people are doing this without realising the, there are real and permanent consequences of doing so. Yeah. Which probably yeah. leads us into some of your research interests. So I think one of them is the mental health and well-being of athletes. And you, you tend to, you actually do focus on female boxers, right? Yeah, yeah. So I... Uh... My research looks at female boxers and also um, my doctorate research is looking at um, elite women rugby players. And that is not something yeah, that I feel extremely passionate about. And, um, you know, something I'm hoping in the next year or so I can look some big news in in terms of the research side of things for sure. Okay, so in your assessment, where are we at? Because now, I can I can speak from a coach's perspective and I can say 
like from an ind individual level, I've had to learn a lot. So you realize you can't coach women the same way you coach men. And there are a number of reasons why. But I think the most important one is if women believe in you, they'll follow you to the ends of the earth. That's what I find from training women. They will follow you to the ends of the earth. But what you can't do with them is shout. Whereas with guys, mm -hmm. guys will have their own ideas. So you do have to shout. Otherwise, they don't really believe it's serious. And once mm -hmm. you start to learn those sorts of, uh, what's better putting it, nuances and differences, you, you realize, actually, I've got two completely different approaches. And it's, mm -hmm. you become more of a listener with women. Yeah. Because as a guy, I don't yeah. know, you know, sometimes someone will say, you know what, Terry, I don't really feel up to it today. And you will know because they put in the work before, you'll know something's not quite right. And so you've got to know, actually, let's just back off today. If you don't want to train, cool. We can catch up another time. You know, and you, you start to have that empathy. And actually, I always say, training women made me a better coach and probably made me a better person. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting, interesting topic in terms of the coaching perspective of male and female athletes especially in the same sport. And um, I think the difference comes in their experiences. Again, and I keep going back to this in terms of society, but you build your experience in society before you actually enter a sport, any sport. And I think with women, they do, there's a lot that's expected, as it is for men. You, you know, you have your expectations in society has certain expectations for each gender and when you act against that norm it, your life suddenly becomes harder and this is the same again for, for, for males as it is for females um, and then of course there's different approaches I think women um, react differently not all but some most react differently to that that aggressive nature of get down and give me 10 now or else blah 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 if you tell them, you know what, you need to get down and give me 10, they'll just get on with it. Um, I don't think there's that need for repeating yourself. Um, and I don't know, I just, again, this isn't representative of all females because actually some of them do need it. They need to be treated like that in terms of they might not be attentive in what you're telling them, they might not want to do it, they might be arrogant. But because of the way they're entrapped with the society, um, I think naturally they will just get on with it, especially in an dominated sport, because then you'll be questioned as to why you're in that sport if you can't do what you're being told. Um, and to remove that consequence, they'll just get on with whatever they're being told. Um, and I don't know if, as a coach, you've seen that yourself, especially in boxing. Um, in boxing, I think when you when you see females, especially if they're new to like a gym, it's a certain type, they will just get their head down and just get on with it. No questions asked. Whereas maybe for, for a male, they're, they're, you know, oh, why am I doing this? Uh, can I not do this instead? Um, there won't be more questions. Um, maybe asking for more alternatives. And again, this is representative of females being a male dominate sport. Um, and because I think they know this is like, one chance thing you get to 
to try out the sport, to make a good impression. And I think there's that weight on, on women's shoulders when they do compete in male-dominated sport of, I'm now representing my gender. And I think that's such a heavy weight to carry, you know. Um, and this isn't just this isn't just based on mine. This is like generally what the research has been out there is suggesting that there's this weight on women athletes' shoulders that are competing in male-dominated sport about the fact that they feel like they're representing all women. And so if they don't make this good impression, this this hard-hitting impression of I am resilient, I am hard enough, I am good enough to be here, I am as good as a male athlete, if not better, and if they fail at that, they've failed their whole gender. And I think that's just such a, that's such a heavy weight to carry. And if you flip that, and if you look at males, for example, um, this rugby as an example is that you can't speak about your emotions because actually society has said so far, maybe not so much since 2015, but up, up until that point, that men can't speak about their emotions because then you're weak. There's that stigma attached to it, which is just so not true. And the men have to deal with that side of things in terms of their own societal pressures. And so we have to really, when you work with with an athlete, whether it's a man or a woman, you really need to take into account the, the gender-specific challenges that they experience within society and within that given sport. And I just feel like that is one aspect that is completely ignored um, when it comes to training. For example, we're taking up women in male-dominated sports in boxing. Um, I feel like that's, all, that's something that is ignored. And if you tweak your approach, you're only improving your athlete's performance whether that's emotionally, physically, or mentally, taking your approach is tailored to that person will only help improve improve their performance in every in every aspect in terms of emotional, psychological, and physical. Um, and that's one thing that I worked with in the boxing on last year was looking at the menstrual cycle and looking at the psychological effects that has on a woman's on a woman's mind as well as their body, and work around that rather than being like oh she's on her menstrual cycle you know when i want to go home actually no use that to the best of your advantage that a certain period within the woman's menstrual cycle that she will perform optimally in an endurance-based exercise because her hormones are tailored in that space for that kind of exercise and so use that to the best of your ability um change the protocol you're using and this is this is thankfully in this up, like upcoming thing at the moment. Um, the English Institute of Sport have been doing this for the last two three years with a, a campaign called the Smarter Her campaign, and um, a lot of research has been pumped into that, which is really great to see. And and they're distributing their research out now, and this goes from psychological research to physiological research, showing that females can train whilst they are on their menstruation cycle to better their performance and their numbers and their results and even achieve PBs. Um, and so it's being clever. It's, it's training smart rather than training hard and, you know, go hard or go home. You need to train smart because when you train smart, you train hard. And there needs to be that, that, that flick, that switch that people need to take into account in terms of tenuring, training for the person that you're working with, whether it's a man or a woman. And I feel like there's this expectation now of coaches to have a certain type of understanding of the people they're working with. 
So if I was to ask you, if we could have Shaq's manifesto for creating a better um, training environment for women, what would the key points of that be? That's a really good question. Um, I think it would be to, as I said, just from a coach's perspective, like, is this advice to give to coaches, for example, in a sport? I think we can do that. So, so almost if you were to walk into a gym and say, well, whoever, whoever's the custodian of the culture, normally a head coach or something like that, here are some yeah. things you probably need to have in your environment in order to, to optimize the experience for, for women looking to take up the sport. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. I think number one would be language, the type of your language you use within your facilities of the gym. Um, make sure it's not degradatory in terms of don't say, you know, don't, don't stop acting like a bitch or stop crying like a girl. Don't, don't use that kind of language because not only are you just undermining a, a woman, at the same time, it's just sort of in hearing that, like, I don't want to hear that when I'm at gym. And that's not just me. Again, that's based on tons of research that's been done with women athletes. You just don't want to hear that kind of stuff when you're in the gym. Like, you're there to, to do the training because you've chosen to turn up. And so to be mindful of the type of language you use, um, both towards a male and female athlete. Secondly, to be tailored, to tailor your approach. So if one thing works for one athlete, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for another athlete. So don't drop that expectation of, I've done this protocol and it works for A, B, and C, but actually when it comes to X, Y, and Z, it's a reason working. And so tailor your approach to the person that you're working with. And if you've got 20 athletes, then tailor your approach to those athletes because only then where you see the optimal performance is when you've tailored it to their abilities and their needs. Um, thirdly, I would say to not differentiate people's abilities based on their gender. Don't just assume that a man's going to be a faster than a woman just based on their gender. Look at their numbers, look at what they're performing, take that into account, and then run with that. So drop that kind of um, misconception that comes with genders. Um, fourthly, I would also say when it comes to women, is to consider things that you may have not considered before, like the menstrual cycle, and try and understand the process in the best way that is accessible to you and the best way you understand to be able to then push forward to enable your athlete to work better and to drop this this attitude. I, I, I find like when I am, um, I've done these workshops in a couple of places, a lot of men, especially, have been like. And I, I don't want to talk about that really. Um, yeah, but it's a bit disgusting. And the first thing I say is that you wouldn't be here if your mum was on a, didn't have a period. It is literally as simple as that. None of us would be here if our mums didn't have periods because without a period, you wouldn't be able to menstruate. Without menstruation, you wouldn't be able to fertilise. You wouldn't be able to carry a child. So it's coming back to reality and actually accountability of what you're saying goes back to what you said earlier. Um, and just be straight, be honest, be open with the athletes. None of this beating around the bush. You know, another another thing would be to stop um, telling your athletes things that they want to hear but are not true in reality. And you, I see in a lot of sports, you know, rugby up in, in boxing, you know, you purposely, for example, in boxing, put someone in who's it's decent, but you put them in the lower-level boxes to make them feel good about themselves, and they get this um, 
this like fulfillment, this sense of I'm really good. And then when they're jumping with someone who's actually good and at the same level as them, their confidence drops. And actually, you're doing you're doing so much damage by doing that in terms of their confidence. And that can eventually actually lead to someone retiring because they realise I wasn't as good as I thought it was. Instead of actually building someone up and building their resilience up and letting them understand that this is a certain level, this is where you're at, our goal is to get you to this level. Tailor it, plan it, execute it, have a plan for everything, set goals, and follow through with them. But at the same time, taking into account people's emotional stability, taking into account the psychological well-being, and offer the support that's needed in terms of professional support. Um, I know that's a lot of things to consider, but I think at the same time, if you want to have an environment where you've got your athletes thriving with minimal issues, you need to take a lot into account. Um, yeah, and that that would be, like, from my perspective, my long list of things to consider. So it's interesting you, you bring a lot of those things up because I was, I was taking those in and thinking the absence of a lot of those things would form the list of complaints that people that leave GB, the female boxers that leave GB raise. And there are a lot of issues around GB boxing. Um, and I promise you the, the weed smoking that happens in those, in those student flats is the least of their worries. Like, you know, uh, a, a lot of women are just blowing it off and going, this isn't a happy experience for me because yeah. you've got a lot of coaches then. I, I'm going to get a hard time for this, but listen, I said no to GB once before, so it doesn't matter to me. You have a lot of old fuddy-duddy kind of coaches. And yeah. I know you've got Amanda Coulson there, but they don't really listen to Amanda, which is a shame because you know, I think she's a hell of a... She knows what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah, but you've got the old guys who are like, no, no, it's, it's got to be the same way for everyone. And so women yeah. end up being unhappy and just going, why am I wasting my time? Yeah. Which yeah. is which is a real yeah. shame. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, so I published a paper. Um, I think this is the journal called Martial Arts Studies. Um, and it was interviewing um, TV boxers who actually on, this was like quite a while ago now, but they were either part of the GBC or part of the England team. And their experiences echoed just that. And it was actually really like one of the themes that popped up. So I, the way I analysed it was that beginner phase for them and then that intermediate phase of building experience and what it was for them during that phase. And then the last phase was what it was like to be at the elite level, i.e. competing for your country. And one thing that popped up, the theme that will always stick with me is this, this satisfaction at the elite level. And it was all these expectations they had at being at elite level, given what was promised to them, and then nothing was met. Um, the coaches they were working with had openly expressed that they didn't want females in the team. Um, they were setting the same benchmark, and we're talking physical benchmark, as their male counterparts. And then when the females weren't performing to that, they were put down to them being lazy, to being unfit, that they shouldn't be there, they don't even know how they'd make the team. And that, if you just keep drilling that into someone, of course someone's going to get up and leave. Like, there's only so much, you know, shit someone's going to take because you are at an elite level because you've dedicated so much of your time and your energy 
into a sport and then now you're getting treated like this at different levels. And for me, it was kind of disheartening to hear that there was the word dissatisfied came up so much, hence why it became a theme. Um, and that some of them had to work full time to be able to actually earn a living. Some of them had family. Um, and so it was disheartening to hear that, I think, that they've given up so much of their time and energy to this school, and yet, even at the top, they still weren't being treated like boxers, let alone like as equals to their male counterparts. Well, when there was numerous um, narratives and discourse around the fact that the male counterparts were being sponsored by so many companies uh, that GB had helped, yet when it came down to the female boxers, nothing, like absolutely nothing. Luckily, I think that's improved now, especially with the likes of Nike coming in, with, with the likes of Adidas, um, recognizing talent, whether you're a man or a woman, and then sponsoring. I think that's, that's a massive thing that they've done. Uh, now, whether that's for their own profile or for actually caring about the athlete, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical about that. Um, but regardless, it's at least helping financially and in terms of kids. And I think when you just when you put yourself in someone else's shoes and you have that that theory of mind of being able to just view something from someone else's perspective, you get to slightly understand life from their point of view. Of of course, you don't want to be in a place where you're not being treated well, let alone being undermined constantly. Um, you you've got unrealistic goals set for you. You're having to cut you know, seven to eight kg to be able to meet an Olympic weight. Um, there was discussions about osteoporosis kicking in, malnutrition, mal- malnutrition kicking in, symptoms of mental health issues, symptoms of eating disorders. And this is a sport that you're meant to be enjoying. This is a sport where you should feel passionate about, but because of mistreatment at that elite level, you know, you lose the love for anything, let alone the sport you're competing in. And so... And that's not just, that isn't just for boxing, you know. I've seen that that same thing come up, which is an interesting to analyse, but at the same time, the starting in, you see it in, in, in MMA as well. Um, I mean, you really think about it, boxing, in terms of being accepted in society, was only in 2012. It was only in 2012 that it was considered as a sport in the Olympics for females. And so that wasn't that long ago. And I guess you, you, well, you don't you don't expect society to welcome. And for me, I, I describe it as a shock because it's about a shock to the system to find you see females in the ring if you're not used to that. And I know for a fact there's judges out there, there's coaches out there. I mean, there's a comment made at myself in, at, at Harringate, and a guy, a judge, was like, he, apparently he scored my belt on that day, and he said, um. Oh, I don't think, you know, I think you box really well, but I don't think, you, should, you know, women should be in the ring. It's not right. I wouldn't put my daughter in the ring. I don't think you should be in the ring. And so that mentality is still there. That misconception is still there. That social stereotype is still there. The type of pressure is still there. And it exists within GB, within the elite ranks. And it's still there. And it is becoming minimized, but very, very, very slowly. So, I think this whole sort of follows on from that. And 
it's it's one of my concerns with female sport and it's rarely talked about because I think you are viewed as being against equality but it's a legacy of I think being involved in contact sports and my biggest worry at the moment for female sports twofold one is the CTE risk which seems to be a lot greater for women than it is for men as is the soft tissue injury risk so if you look at the number of women in football at the top level who have torn their ACL ridiculous compared to the men absolutely ridiculous and we don't have these discussions but I think we need to because then that also informs the kind of training that you do and whether what you're doing in training is accelerating that risk are they doing too much sparring and then it comes down to that question of should women be doing three minute rounds and I don't think the science is conclusive on a lot of these things but these are Mm-hmm. what I'd call the emerging threats, if nothing else. Yep, I think you make a really great point, especially in terms of ACL injuries. So this goes back to my point about the menstrual cycle. And this happens, and to me, it's still unbelievable that these conversations are not being had. So for example, when you look at the rates of ACL injuries and the prevalence of when they're happening, it's usually happening during a certain phase of the menstrual cycle where you have the hormone which increases elasticity within women. For example, in the ACL, it increases, and so it puts you more at risk of tearing it. And of course, males won't won't experience that because they don't have the same hormones as females. But you're more more susceptible in a certain phase of your menstrual cycle to tear your ACL because it's, it's elasticated far more than usual. And all it takes, of course, as you know, is a, a twist of the knee, a tackle, a fall, future terror. And this is what I meant when I said we need to be considerate of training smarter rather than training hard and having that, you know, train hard, train or go home, whatever. With training smarter comes training hard, but you focus on your physical ability, your physical um, performance, and also where you are as a female in your menstrual cycle, that plays a huge part because you're looking at what hormones are being released in that moment. But because those things don't get taken into account in many sports, then you do get that increased prevalence of ACL tests, for example, if we're using that as an example. So the, the risk can be reduced significantly if the protocols are put into place. And at the moment, not enough is being done around that topic. And unfortunately, it's because of this stigma that's attached. It's a taboo with menstrual cycles, like it was with, with mental health maybe five, six years ago. People just don't want to speak about it because they don't feel comfortable, makes them feel uncomfortable. Yet it is affecting people so much that there's research out there, there's tons of research suggesting ACL tools are far more prevalent in, in female athletes than it is in males. But there's a reason as to why, and that reason can be prevented significantly, but people at the moment don't want to hear about it. So to, to counteract that that risk, there is a protocol, there is an answer to it, but people are not open to it. Now, I think when it comes to talking about maybe damage or concussion rates, that's, that's a different topic in terms of its physiological makeup. Um, I'm no physiologist. I'm coming from a psychology background, but of course I've come across these topics within my research. And so far what the research has suggested is that there's, there's, there is still no stable answer when it comes to, for example, the head start situation, because there's one answer saying that females 
have a less, um, what's the best way to put it, I guess, the surface of the, of the brain, the, the, the fluid that protects the brain is far more fragile than, than the male counterparts. But then there's other researchers that and otherwise actually know it's the same. And then when it comes to head guards, it, we should keep the head guards on because it's protecting the, the, the skull, the fluid around the brain. And then there's other researchers that actually know when you take the impact of the punch, you're taking one impact from the glove to the head guard, the second impact comes from the head guard to the head. So actually you're doubling the risk then by keeping the head guard on. And so there's this back and forth argument at the moment in terms of research and there's no general consensus in terms of what needs to be done. And what annoys me, I guess, is that we're seeing amateurs of females wearing head guards, yet when they turn pro, they don't. The only thing that changes is that there's a drop in a minute. So I feel like females are, in terms of boxing, being used as guinea pigs at the moment, and that's not the safest approach to take. And I think actually the safest approach to take is to do what you know has been working so far in, 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 male, in their male counterparts, because that's the closest you're going to get to being safe is knowing that actually we do all come from the same skeletal, for example, makeup, and similar genetic makeup. So of course we do differ in terms of, as I said, um, hormones and the make makeup of certain tissues and muscles in our in our in our bodies. But the fact that that's the fact that that's not being taken into account is, is frustrating. I think if you are going ahead of the three minutes in amateurs, that you shouldn't even question that in the professionals. That should remain at three minutes because actually Again, you're running the risk of your body changing what what it was used to, to then what it's getting used to now is just dropping back down to two minutes. And um, yeah, I, that that was one thing I'm in agreement. I think there needs to be a lot more urgency around this, far more urgency than there is at the moment. And it comes back to funding. There isn't enough funding to for people to answer these research questions. There's, there's a lot of researchers out there that would love to do this. Um, but the funding just isn't available because it's been pumped into other stuff that is far less important, but it's more eye-catching. So, yeah, that, that's that's my viewpoint on that. And in terms of funding, I, I, I see a lot in, in women's rugby. Um, things that should be funded by, for example, World Rugby are not being funded by World Rugby as much as they like to provide the lip service that they are passionate about equality. Um, in terms of representing women at um, rugby players the same way as male, when it comes down to funding, they don't fund um, the research that's needed to examine women rugby players. So have you been tracking the the CTE drama that's happening in rugby at the moment? So you've got, oh God, I want to get the names wrong. So you've got, no, I remember them, Steve Thompson. Michael Lipman and Alex Popham, who are the named guys at the moment in a proposed lawsuit. I think it's against the RFU, the WRU, who represent England and Wales rugby, and then World Rugby, maybe the IRB as well. And in essence, what they're saying is these guys knew about the CTE risk in maybe 2005 and did yeah. nothing about it till like 2000 and probably 2012. And so what Steve Thompson's saying, and I think this was the most harrowing bit, well, actually, there were two really harrowing bits. So when Steve Thompson said he can't remember winning the Rugby World Cup, he's like, I watched the video, but I don't remember playing. 
I don't think he's lying about that, to be honest with you. And then, no, you, I think not. then, then you had this interview. So Alex Popham is interviewed on, I think it's Radio 5, with his wife. Mm-hmm. And he's sat next to his wife in the conversation. And he's forgotten what his wife has said during that conversation and actually gone back to the original point. And you've actually seen the effects of the dementia live in an interview. Mm-hmm. And so, so the story moves on after that. And we get a uh, lady used to play for England, I think it's Cat Merchant. And so she's talking about how she had to retire at 28 with 11 concussions. Yeah. 11 concussions, oh, yeah. as in, I think she said, these were the concussions that resulted in her being knocked out. As opposed to yeah. just the micro, you know, you get the micro traumas as well, which also have a cumulative effect. And so her, yeah. her effects are mood swings. She can't control her moods. She doesn't understand why, you know, certain things trigger her off. She can't be around bright lights or loud music. And so you look at this and you go, this is going to land at boxing's door at some point. And I think this is for male and female athletes. And yeah. to be honest, it's got me worried because I'm thinking I played about 230, maybe 250 games of rugby in my life. And, oh, wow. and that's literally at the coalface, knees to the head. Yeah getting kicked, you know, big hits, all of that, being knocked out a few times. And now you go, Jesus, what am I going to be like when I'm 50? And I think Mm -hmm. this is something that it's an emerging storm that I wish the governing bodies would get ahead of, but they seem to be burying their heads in the sand and saying, no, we've done nothing wrong. And it's, we're in a dangerous place at the moment because as we talked about earlier, we've got this really weird, perfect storm brewing, which is, bigger athletes so even even in given weight classes in boxing the people are getting taller mm-hmm. the muscular density goes up a lot of it's PED use let's not even pretend otherwise because yeah. humans yeah, don't I evolve that fast so you've yeah. got bigger stronger faster but it's still the same brain and it's still the same skull just facing greater yeah. forces yeah and no one's doing anything about this and that's what worries me the most at the moment yeah no, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I think in, in every contact sport that comes at risk, um, American football, rugby, boxing, MMA, you know, those, those contact, those heavy contact sports. Um, with CTE as well, in terms of the symptoms, like it really does affect the way someone thinks, someone feels, acts and moves. And the thing it is like, it, 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 it's blind to us because we can't see it. And I think that's another reason why it's not taken as seriously is because it's not right in your face. You can't see it, and so you can ignore it far more easier than, for example, on a broken leg. And the symptoms differ within each person. Um, so with some of the research I've done, um, something that's been really clear in a meta-analysis um, I, I conducted recently was that with um, concussion, so um, the, the more concussion, concussion you experience, the more likely you are to then experience symptoms of mental disorders. So that's instantly increasing your risk of being diagnosed, clinically being diagnosed with a mental disorder and usually it's either depressive disorders and or some sort of some form of anxiety disorder. And depressive disorders and anxiety disorders come in all different shapes and sizes. So it really depends which one you may be diagnosed with or even the symptoms you might be experiencing. Yes, again, these, these 
things I've not spoken about whatsoever. Um, and I've come back to ask why I think that is happening. But over time, of course, people may start to experience mood changes, even personality changes. You know, you become forgetful and you struggle with these normal daily tasks that months ago you might have been fine. Um, and these problems start to increase with with, with um, symptoms of CTE. And even at its worst, although there's no at the moment any actual link between CTE and suicide, when you start to experience severe symptoms of mental disorders, suicide is an outcome. And so we need to be mindful of that. And I think one of the reasons it's not spoken about is because governing bodies are worried and to a certain extent feel frightened about how it's going to affect the rate of people coming into the sport now being aware of the risks they're running with entering and competing in these sports. And so, of course, a government body wouldn't want that to happen. They wouldn't want um, the, the rates of numbers dropping, participant numbers dropping, because essentially they'll be losing money. Yet, we're talking life and death, essentially, and I think it's, it's, it's outrageous that this isn't being talking about, it's disgusting, it's not being talked about, because it could significantly affect someone's, someone's quality of life um, in the long term. Um, and one of the reasons, actually, that um, I I stopped boxing initially um, was because I was forced into it. And I got concussed. I didn't take it seriously. I went back into boxing. And then I was rushing to A&E at one point because I was feeling dizzy. I'd, my vision wasn't great. I was becoming forgetful. I had this banging headache for three days. Um and I just ignored it. And I know that ignorance comes from a place of, I'll be fine, you know. And we, we mix things up. We mix mental toughness for experiencing symptoms of some, something. And this confusion comes from a lack of speaking about it. Um, and I think that, that those terms, such as mental toughness or resilience, actually become quite detrimental because if you don't know the definitions of what those are, you start missing symptoms of quite severe problems. And so when I went in there, they said, you know, you might be experiencing symptoms of post-concussion syndrome. And this was this was probably about six, about five, five years ago, four years ago, maybe, four years ago. And I was like, what's post-concussion syndrome? I went home and read about it, and I was like, wow, this is literally describing me down to the teeth. Um, and I wasn't like, I wasn't actually diagnosed with it. They just said you may be experiencing some symptoms, but... It took me to go to A&E to understand what that was, given I was in the sport for a while at that point. Um, and I think I'm lucky because I, of my background in studying psychology at that time, I was doing my master's in psychology, so I, I recognised my mood swings very quickly. I, I recognised the fact that I was struggling with some daily tasks very quickly. And so I got managed, um, I was seeking help quite efficiently and very quickly. But that can't be said for people, for every single person. And I think in, in, in stuff like rugby, you might not speak about it because actually you might think I might not get picked for the team and I don't want that, I don't want that to affect my, my position within the team. So you won't speak about it. And again, these factors are out there in research and people are doing research out there as to why people don't talk about concussions. Again, it comes back to that taboo topic. It's just not spoken about. And there's a lot of, a lot of fear attached to that. But there's also another reason, Shaq. I mean, I think this is probably true in my case and some of the mates I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks. We don't want to confront the fact that something might be wrong. 
I think you're like, if I don't go to the doctor, he can't tell me I've got dementia. No matter what I'm yeah. seeing in front of me, I'll work around it. As it's, less, you know, it's less mental toughness, more the the avoidance of, well, totally the ignorance of fear. Because you are, you're like, Jesus Christ, like if I've got dementia, what does that mean for me? And we don't really know. And I think that's that happens a lot with people, whether it's you want to go and get a blood test or you want to get your knee looked at. Sometimes it's just the fear of, what if he tells me the worst thing I fear? And you go, actually, do you know what? I can still walk. I can still just about function. I'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Again, I think it comes down to fear, doesn't it? Um, for example, we're talking about fear, how some governing bodies, probably most with fear that their participant rate, participation rates will drop and so they won't address the problem as severe as the problem is. And for us personally, um, fear as humans is like one of the worst experiences we can we can we can have as a human being. And so we do anything to avoid that and, you know, it goes back to looking at different coping strategies that we, we display as humans. Problem solving could be one of them where you actually want to go and seek support. Um, one of them could be denial. And so you you don't want to go and you you know, you block out the problem and no, I'll do it another day actually. No, it's not that important. You avoid it. Avoidance. Again, another coping strategy. And so, again, like if you want to look at it from another lens, it's looking at what these problems essentially present us with is the feeling of fear and something that we don't want to deal with and because it makes us feel uncomfortable. So, the problems with CT is that where we can't see it, it's hard to recognize, but it's easier to ignore. And I, I do always use the, the analogy of if you've got like a, a, your leg and it's a sprain, you go and get it checked out and you prevent it from breaking. Um, you won't go and seek support when it's broken and you've got your limb literally hanging out. And it's the same concept for anything to do with your mental well-being, CT included. Um, you've got to gain help when you start experiencing symptoms if you had that and you won't wait until, you know, you feel like you're about to faint every day. And so I think where it's a silent problem and we can't see it, it's a lot harder to tackle and a lot harder to control and a lot harder to recognise. And it unfortunately comes for this is increased in sport that was associated with being mental health, being resilient, not complaining. And we need to change that attitude and actually start to become more aware of these symptoms and talk about it and then guide people as to where they can go. So it, it really comes down to our literacy and increasing our literacy around these problems, be it mental health, be it CTE, be it concussion, um, and provide the support, the professional support that's needed. Do you know the worst example of this in boxing that, I've, that I'm aware of? I'm sure there are many, but this is one that I kind of lived through. And it was when Lucas Brown fought Dillian White. And I remember it was a Wednesday. And I got a text off my friend because he was he was in camp. And he just said, listen, Lucas Brown has just been iced. So I'm like, how badly? And he just said, the ambulance is on its way. All right. Oh, my God. So then I said, they're, they're, are they going to cancel the fight? He's like, no, the fight carries on. So I said, okay. Um, I'm worried now but as soon as I hung mm. up the phone I, I put a fair bit of money on, on Dillian White to knock out Lucas Brown in under six because I knew enough about concussion to know 
when yeah. you get hit heavy like that, if you show up to fight, you don't have anything yeah. in you. And so yeah. watching him get laid out like that, I just said, you know what? You've taken years of this man's life. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really upsetting to hear. Like, the fact that it doesn't get, into, it doesn't get taken seriously at the highest level. And that's the highest level. And I do, I do put the blame on, on the British Board of British, I don't know if say this right. British Board of Control. Um, I'm sure I got that wrong. But I did, I did British Boxing Board of Control. That's the one, yeah. And, um, yeah, I just I just think, like I said, they've got better, but it is, given their status and how much control they have around the sport, it is nowhere near where it should be at all. Um, again, given the dangers that comes with the sport, and I just think you're not helping yourself. Like, boxing gets ripped to shreds when it comes to the topic of concussions. And yet, there are so many protocols that we can we could put into place and adhere to to prevent those kind of criticism of boxing because we can say actually we're preventing anything we can be we're preventing we've got strategies put in the place that will prevent the risk of these problems. And that will shut people up because you know, with any sport you compete in will will come you know, with ice skating you can drop on your head and break something. You know, but there's protocols put into place. And as for this there needs to be protocols put into place for boxing and those protocols are not yet in place. And I, I personally can't believe we're having this conversation in 2020, given the magnitude of technology and the, te- the technical facilities we have, especially in sport. I mean, you've got VAR now in football, which is something we're annoying, but at the same time, it's giving them more of an accurate reading where we didn't have access to 10 years ago. And yet, I feel like boxing is still left behind, but on purpose, because some people just don't want to move on. And when we look at who sits at the top, I refer to them as a dinosaur. They don't want to move on because they want to keep things the way they were. And so I like to think it is progressively changing, but again, at a very slow rate. And for the sake of the well-being of every boxer, every single boxer from the grassroots to the to the world champions, these topics need to be taken way more way more seriously. And starting from the grassroots to the top up. Um, we need to take a bottom-up approach and build up, and yeah, adhere to these to these problems and hopefully reduce the risk. Because yeah, I just yeah, I can't just believe like that fire went ahead um, with that. I just find it unbelievable. And I think in the problem is with, with with boxing is that there's a lot of ego involved and. People won't come forward and say, you know what, of course it's easier said than done, but when you think about it, you've got to think about your life in the long term. You know, if you've, if you've got a family, if you've got loved ones, for me, I just feel like it's a selfish thing to be like, you know what, now I'm going to risk everything and just go, go into this fight and hope for the best. Because what happens if it doesn't, then who's got to take off, look after you back after that, you know? And this isn't like, this isn't like thinking negatively or anything. This is genuinely thinking realistically um, and putting your health before anything else. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I think ego plays a massive part in that too. No, 100%. I, I think boxing creates these really perverse incentives because once you've done your 10 or 12 week camp and you're like, I'm 10 days away from 300 grand or whatever Lucas would have earned do I really want to go home out of pocket or do I just go up there, get put on my backside and take the money? 
And those, yeah. those are really perverse incentives. But you know, boxing thrives on those sorts of perverse incentives, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And health before wealth, I always say it. Like nothing beats your health. You can't take your money to the grave, so make sure you're healthy. Absolutely, 100%. So we're going to pause it there for, for part one, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. I just think, as I said right in the introduction, she's a fascinating woman who has been able to be brutally honest in a way that I don't think many women in the sport have been up until this point. I think maybe Jane Couch. And she's able to have that discussion and articulate a lot of things that are unsaid. But when we do look at women's sport in particular in the context of this show, when we look at women's boxing, sometimes we have to understand that we can't just view it through the construct we have with men's boxing because we're essentially dealing with a whole new way of doing boxing. Better or worse is irrelevant. It's just a different way. And I hope that came across in part one. And then we're going to move into part two where we talk more about SAS Who Dares Wins. So if you want to catch up on some of those episodes between you know, part one and part two, please feel free to do so. And we will see you in part two.